once again uh, with your high school, Parker High School, um, uh-huh. as we know, is uh, named after the first principal of the high school, which was formerly known as Independence uh, High School. Uh, Industrial High School. High school excuse me. Um, he was also a school teacher in the 16th Street Baptist Church. I know we went over that, and uh, also the first graduation that took place for that high school was also that had also taken place inside the 16th Street Baptist Church as well. Hello. Okay. All right. So your high school at the time, around that time, um, was your high school segregated? No. No, no schools were segregated when I was a kid. None, none of the schools in Birmingham. Segregation, in fact, the latest copy of the segregation laws that I have in Birmingham were dated from 1954. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were no schools that were segregated. There were a few private schools who might have... Um, allow the presence of let's say doctors children or attorneys children but public schools which is what parker high school was okay uh, was not was not integrated during the time that i was there and as were none of the other public schools white or black right. i know as we as we mentioned uh before that y'all also were released at different times as well. So even though the school the school had like predominantly black students in it, you guys were not even released at the same time. I think you said that the uh, white kids were released about what two thirty, and you were you guys were released about like three o'clock. We were released at three fifteen every day. Okay. Yeah, for the four years that I attended school. We were due at school at 8.15, and we were released at 3.15. The white students were due at school at 7.30, and they were released from school at 2.30. Okay. So so that way it was a really large gap that you guys never even seen each other. No, uh, that, that was the intent, that we would not even actually pass, whether that was in walking or on the bus or uh, wherever any of us happened to be. It gave uh, everybody an opportunity to, to get home or be wherever you were supposed to be when school was over without encountering uh, anyone else. Okay. So, on May 2nd the, L- the SCLC held uh, two demonstrations. Uh, what were these demonstrations supposed to accomplish? Uh, that's D-Day and Double D-Day. Yeah, well, ultimately, um, you know, if we talk about the fact that Reverend uh, Fred Shuttlesworth had been marching uh, since probably since the, the Brown v. Board decision, which would have been 1954. Uh, ultimately, the, what we were marching about was trying to integrate schools that, according to federal law, according to the Brown versus Board of Education decision, should have already been integrated some eight or nine years earlier. But in 1963, everything was still very, very segregated. So, uh, the the march was about number one ending segregation that was one and reverend shuttlesworth would say we aim to kill segregation or to be killed by it uh but that was the number one goal ending segregation and following that number one goal were things like uh allowing the public transit system to hire black people uh, allowing them to work in the department stores, uh, grocery stores where they shopped. Uh, and of course, uh, the integration of the schools as well, given, uh, that, that Brown v. Board had been, uh, proclaimed by the federal government so many years earlier and nothing, and, and Birmingham for all practical purposes 
had not changed at all. So ending segregation, getting some of the very public jobs and so forth, integrating the schools were two of the, uh, were several of the, the goals that they had. And when his, I guess when his goals were not reached, and there was still was, a, I mean, a really good uh, turnout because the tragic events that took place on that day reached all the way to the White House. And uh, President Kennedy at the time was not happy about what he's seen happening to you guys out there on the streets. Um, Paul Connor riding around with the white tank and dog police dogs biting children, biting other people. The water hoses, which were not expected. It just was a really bad day. So with all of these different events taking place, I'm guessing that the segregation still didn't come about that was needed or that was uh, supposed to be accomplished because on August 28th, Martin Luther King did the March on Washington, which is we know is one of the biggest demonstrations of peace uh, in American history. Now, this was initially supposed to like say hey we're tired we're done this demonstration is to say segregation has to come now i mean desegregation excuse me has to come now and we want it to come by means of this march well um the march on washington uh did include uh ending segregation it was also and primarily uh, a poor people's march. Okay. It was, I think, the very first poor people's campaign that had we had seen in our country. But along with the the idea of ending uh, poor people or or launching a poor people campaign was also the notion still of ending segregation. And you're right, the president. Uh, uh, was very disturbed at what he had seen in Birmingham. Uh, the rest of the nation was um, appalled at what they had seen as well and the world had seen, actually the, the dogs, the water hoses, and so forth. So the president, um, President Kennedy, appealed to the nation. But when we went to Washington and people saw the crowd that uh, uh, was there, uh, in Washington, the crowd that represented the things that they were trying to end. I think that um, there was a somewhat of a fearful moment for uh, our nation, for people. If you were not a person of color during that march on Washington, there, there may have been some fear that, hey, they're really going to succeed or we're now we're getting ready to to integrate or to do some things we had never intended to do right. in our country. So, yeah, I think the, the Poor People's Campaign, the march, uh, sort of highlighted or exacerbated the notion that black people were intending to stand strong and not to waver in their fight for equality, meaning ending segregation in the schools and economic justice, too, you know, ending a right. lot of the poverty that existed in the country and, and with this with this uh peaceful march and which such was with such a strong stance that it stood on it did cause uh the desegregation of the schools correct well many of us believe that that march on washington uh, was the impetus for the bombing of the 16th Street Church. Right. Uh, if you could see the, um, go back and, and see the pictures of the people that congregated in Washington, I think that was a bit threatening to many of the people that saw it. Right. Uh, likely said, you know, if we're not careful, they're going to be successful yeah. in ending segregation and and you know demanding equality and so many people feel that uh you know the somewhere in alabama the order was given or somewhere uh, whether they were in alabama or not but where somewhere the order was given 
to bomb the church. We know that the Ku Klux Klan and its members were ultimately held responsible for that. Right. Uh, we didn't know initially, but the the thought has always been that the, per- the church was bombed as a way to frighten those that were interested in obtaining their freedom. The church was bombed as a way to end the protests and the marching that was going on. It was meant to intimidate, to uh, make people retreat, go back home and just forget the ideas that they had about equality mm. and ending segregation. So, so 18 days later, we're now at September 15th. And then this is uh, the morning of September 15th, which is a Sunday. Um, what was a typical Sunday like in your home? A typical Sunday morning? Well, normally on Sunday morning, we were all getting ready for Sunday school. Um, I had a couple of important duties, which included uh, running the library after church. It included being the secretary of the Sunday school. So we were always there promptly at um, 930 and that particular Sunday was not different. Um, I was driven to church by my father with two younger brothers. We were dropped off at 930 and my father went on to work. And uh, it was just a typical Sunday, other, aside from the fact that it was youth day. Um, and our theme for that day, the title of the lesson for Sunday school and the title of the sermon that we did not get to hear was a love that forgives from the text of Luke. So we were excited because everyone had a role to play. If you were a young person, you had a role to play, uh, either reading the scripture in the choir as an usher or something. And we were all excited uh, about the fact that it was our day. It was youth day. And next, you have, we have the excitement. You're doing your regular duties that you do every Sunday. So just this particular Sunday, things were a little bit off. Can you break down the events? Well, when I arrived at church, I placed those two younger brothers in their Sunday school classes. And then I immediately proceeded upstairs because... Um, it was my job to pass out the the Sunday school envelopes uh, in which people gave their offering. And uh, we had about 10 classes at that time. The adults were upstairs. The children's or younger youth classes were downstairs. So my job was just to get those materials in their hands so they could record uh, the number of people present, they could record their offering. And uh, then my job later, about 10, 15, 10, 20, was to go back and pick up all of those reports and create uh, a cumulative report, which I would read when we reassembled uh, after Sunday school. So this Sunday was, was not different. I think until um, it was time for me to leave my class about 10.15 and I collected all of the reports downstairs and as I proceeded upstairs I passed the bathroom where the girls were. I saw them there. They appeared to be um, uh, just combing hair and talking you know just primping as girls do. Uh, I did not pause to to talk to them. I said good morning and kept walking. Even though it was youth day and even though I was, um, Cynthia and I had a club meeting scheduled uh, later that day at 3 p.m. I didn't didn't pause to to discuss any of that. I just passed on by, said good morning, kept running on up the stairs. And when I reached the top of the stairs, uh, the phone was ringing in the church office. And when I went in, I peeped in, and Mrs. Shorter was not there, so I answered the phone, and the caller on the other end said, three minutes. Now, now as, as we... Quickly as they said that, they hung up. Now, as we as we mentioned before, uh, Miss Shorter had been receiving these calls 
hormone. These uh these, right. 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 She did mention that to me when I first arrived at Sunday school and I went upstairs to get the reports to pass them out. She did mention that to me and I really um you know, she didn't she didn't say we've been receiving bomb threats or that I'm afraid somebody you know, the way she said it just didn't register with me. She's yeah. she let me know we've been getting a lot of phone calls and she was very uncomfortable about the phone calls. Um I wasn't so sure what it was. And, and you know, and of course I know now perhaps uh what made her so uncomfortable when she mentioned it. The other thing is that the church had been receiving a lot of uh, threatening phone calls, but we were not told, young people were not told. What we learned later was that they assembled the deacons, the trustees, the adults of the church, and they had a conversation and they said, look, we've been getting these phone calls. Uh, they're very threatening phone calls. So we're going to place our deacons and trustees around the church Anytime we're here, that's on Sunday morning, that's on Wednesday Bible study nights. And if we have to meet here for any reason, we think it's a good idea to have people stationed, our members stationed outside to watch the church. I think, though, that um, what the pastor himself has said is that after the march on Washington, after the favorable speech by John F. Kennedy, and after the city of Birmingham sort of agreed and said, yeah, well, we need to take another look at this. I think we should try to work uh, with, um, with what we have been asked to do. Um, it was at that point that uh, apparently people began, some people felt threatened. It was at that point that the Klan went into action and so the, the point that I'm really making is that the, full, the, the adults in the church were well aware of these bomb threats. Okay. Uh, uh, many of them had gotten them at their homes. I mean, they were well aware, but I was not aware because I was 14 years old. Mm. And they never called the children in and said, look, here's what's happening. What they tried mm. to do was keep everything from us, and they did so mm. I really didn't know what Miss Shorter was talking about. It wasn't that I didn't. I hear I heard a bomb every time it went off in Birmingham. You, it didn't matter where you lived. You always heard the bomb when it went off, and all of Birmingham heard it. What you also knew after you heard that bomb was that somebody was going to call your house and say they just bombed the AG Gaston Motel or whatever had been bombed. You would learn about it. And you were always grateful to know that no one had been hurt or had been injured. Uh, right. So I did know about bombings in general, what was happening in Birmingham, but no one had ever told any of us, hey, the church is getting threatening phone calls every day. Ms. Shorter knew it, which explains her reaction, but that's not what she conveyed to me. You know, she's, she's been getting crazy phone calls. Um, nothing that would have indicated to me, uh, what was about to happen? So, so you are you're so this morning, you went to the office and you pick up the phone, and we we go from there now. So when I answered the phone, the caller on the other end said three minutes. That's all he said, and he hung up the phone. And I'm still holding in my left arm all of my materials that I have collected from downstairs. So I answered the phone with my right hand. I hang up the phone with my right hand. And I walk out of the office and go down those two steps out into the sanctuary. And just as I reach the very first row of the pews, the bomb exploded. Wow. So now bomb explodes. You, you hit the floor. And I remember you saying that at first you thought it was thunder. Like you didn't know if it was thunder or, or if it was a bomb. I, yeah, I really didn't know what it was because the bombs that I had always heard, generally I was either inside of my house. On many occasions, I was just sitting outside. We would be sitting outside talking or playing and we would hear it. 
But I think it just sounds very different if you're on the inside of a building that is being bombed as opposed to the outside. Oh, that's okay. what I. So, um, so once it once it goes off, I know you say you're on the floor, and then that's when you hear the footsteps coming towards your way, and everyone is now making their way out of the church. But instead, you are now you have to find out where your little brothers are at, and that's and right. and your search for your little brothers, you you stumble back up upon. The uh, lounge, because like you said, it was a lounge, like a restroom slash lounge where the girls were at, and it was in total dis, totally dis, uh, uh, how you say, totally dismantled at the time that you arrived back than what it was when you first went down there. And I know you mentioned that you there was nothing you can see, you know, like the pictures as as we we mentioned before, the pictures online we can see inside but from the other side as you mentioned you couldn't see that that's not what you can see you couldn't see daylight from the other side oh that's right those pictures were taken from the outside of the church and what i did was just look in every empty room uh we had little classrooms on the left and the right side of the church we also had a men's bathroom down there and a women's bathroom uh, today, both of those bathrooms have been moved to a different floor. And uh, But when I started to the girls' bathroom, I thought to myself, they wouldn't be in the girls' bathroom anyway because they knew, you know, girls from boys' bathroom. Mm -hmm. So I, I started in there twice. On, and, you know, went outside and I, I did, when I first came in, I didn't see them anywhere. And I went outside and looked around. Then I came back inside and I started toward that bathroom again. And I just said, well, they wouldn't be in here. Uh, but I just was looking in every empty space downstairs. That's basically what I was trying to do. Just see if maybe they were hiding or something in one of these spaces. And um, I was not able to, to see them. And in fact, um, we didn't even know at that point that the four girls had been killed, had not made it out of the bathroom. I would not even know that until uh, I found my father we all went home and someone would call later about maybe 2 30 ish or somewhere there about to let us know that the mm -hmm. girls had not made it out of the bathroom because at this moment this at this moment what has to be understood is your main concern is your brothers and no you that's un, go ahead that's right. and uh, and as you finally make it outside you stumble upon your dad I know you, you mentioned that when I, in the book. You, go ahead. Uh, my right. father was on his way to work. Right. We, okay. And we had, our family had one car. He said when he arrived at work, some of his co-workers said to him, hey, they just bombed your church. And he knew that my mother couldn't do anything because he had the car, so he got up and came back down to the church. He got back in the car and came back to the church and was looking everywhere for us. I was the first person. Well, actually, he encountered my 10-year-old brother. He encountered him before he got to the church. My brother was running to the downtown area, and my father saw him, and he stopped and, you know, got him, and he, he, he sort of in, just encountered him first. So he got him, he put him in the car, and he came on down toward the church, and he saw me just walking around in the crowd because I was still looking for the two young brothers. And he uh, was able to get me out of the crowd into the car. We couldn't find the younger brother, but when we got home, my father took the two of us home. When we got home, my mother had received a call from, from a gentleman that was... Uh, had encountered my six-year-old brother and told my mom that he would wait right where he was and would keep him there until um, my father could get back with the car to pick him up. Right. Because we, the, I know you said he, when it happened, he ran out of the church and on his uh, pursuit away from the church, he ran into a gentleman held tightly onto his legs, and that gentleman took him on to his house. And that's the phone call that I received was from that gentleman who 
uh, safely took your little brother to his place. I guess you see he was afraid and your little brother let him know his address and everything and he was safe after, that's after right. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. That that story was, was given to us by the man himself. Right. And uh, yeah, we were, of course, my mom was very grateful and he t assured her that uh, he assured her that he would hold him there, right there with him until he could, someone could pick him up. Okay. So, then you guys, you guys, like you say, you guys are home and the events of the day is still, is still not like really settled in or really hit you, you guys. And then that's when you received the phone call that the four girls were actually killed in the uh, bombing. And then right. I, I know you, I know you mentioned that it was at that moment you realized that, you know, your friend and one of your best friends was, you know, you're never going to be able to see her again. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, usually when an event like this takes place, our parents, even before we go to sleep or even before we do end out that day, they would usually try to have a conversation with us to make sure that we are, you know, sit at ease. Did a conversation take place that night, as you, as you remember, about what happened? No, there was no conversation. Um, well, after my mother received the phone call that the girls had not made it out of the bathroom, she she let me know. She informed me. And, um, you know, she may have spoken to someone else later that evening, but I did not speak to anyone else, nor did she relay to me that she had spoken to anyone or what they said. I think, um, I kind of think that what, they might have been doing was just watching us just to see if we reacted in any uh, uh, ways that would have been a concern, you know, if we appeared to be really frightened or afraid or whatever, but there was no conversation at all. And, and in fact, uh, we went to sleep and Monday morning, we were back to school at 8 o'clock as always. Okay, so Monday morning, you're back in school. I mean, you. I'm sure you don't remember the the morning that you woke up. It could it you could have probably had breakfast typically like you usually do, or however you're prepared or you prep for Monday morning. But now you're back in school and you go to school. What is the reaction from the people, the students at school, the faculty, the staff? How was everybody reacting to? This event, this tragic event that just took place yesterday. There was no reaction. There was no reaction. It was not discussed. Uh, there was no, well, how do you feel today? Do you want to talk about what happened? Uh, was any, were any of you there? Uh, there simply was nothing said about what the events of the previous day. So then... You know, it's like we mentioned, no, there were no count. Now, did, were, did the school have counselors back then? The school did have we counselors. Had, we had what we called guidance counselors. Okay. And I think their primary job was to uh, number one, if you had a behavior problem, and if you went didn't go to them for that, it might be to talk about. Uh, college applications or opportunities, uh, possibly even jobs or something. But um, no one, we, they weren't there. We didn't have nurses, as, as you know them. Uh, right. Later, when my children went to school, they, the schools had nurses, but we didn't have nurses either. So no, there, there just was no in the auditorium, there was nothing. It was just as though nothing had, nothing was different. Nothing had happened. Whatever you were thinking, only you knew that you were thinking. Right. So, if 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 you was if you was able to to go back, and you was able to just have a moment to tell the teacher about how your friends were. 
What little bit can you tell us about Denise McNair, about Cynthia Wesley, about Carol Robinson, about Addie Collins? What what can you what can you tell us about them that you know we we've uh, all heard or we haven't heard or anything you know that like if we were to take take it back and you were able to have that conversation, what would you be able to say that people need to know about them so that they they are remembered and this is not forgotten about? Well, okay, now, what everyone always has to remember is that uh, I knew them when the church was bombed. Three of them were 14 years old. One was 11 years old. But I was also 14 years old. Right. So, you know, the idea that uh, any of us as children are wondering about what somebody will be when they grow up or wondering about someone's future, it just wasn't in my mind at all. But what I do remember, um, Cynthia Wesley's father was my grade school principal, and her mother also taught school and was an excellent seamstress. I would have imagined that she would have been a great uh, teacher or educator. Uh, Same thing with... Uh, Carol Robinson, her mother was the local librarian, one of them anyway, and uh, Alpha Robinson, and she had, uh, Carol had an older sister and brother, so I I, I kind of would have seen both of those uh, young women in the educational profession, I think. Um, Yeah. Addie Mae Collins, I did not know as well. Addie's sister was in my Sunday school class, Junie. Her name was Junie. Okay. And I really don't know much about what Addie's aspirations would have been. Um, uh, she was a very quiet young lady. Uh, of all of the sisters, there were four sisters at the church, and Addie was the most quiet of those four sisters. Okay. So uh, I knew her well, but I knew her sister better. She looked- and in fact, her sister and I sometimes after Sunday school, while we were waiting for church to start, sometimes her sister and I would walk over to the store or somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, together. Uh, and then finally, the youngest uh, victim, Denise McNair, was 11 years old. Uh, Denise was just real friendly, cute little girl. Her father was my ninth grade teacher. He also was our local photographer, took a lot of my pictures, personal pictures. When I needed them, I would go to him. Um, They said they thought Denise, her parents have indicated that they thought at one point she wanted to be a teacher. Um, And some have said they thought she said she wanted to be a doctor. But, you know, again, she was 11 years old and and I never had that conversation with her. I have no doubt that all of these young women would have made tremendous contributions to the world that we live in. They were all just very vibrant and alive and excited. And I just have no doubt that they would have made some awesome contributions to us. I believe that their stories in which we're sharing today and your story in which we share now is, is putting them in a place of education. Is putting them in a place of an educator or a professor and even more, you know, a historian yeah. and many different things because they become great through their memories. You know, as we That's know, right. their memories as, as though they, as they live on and as we learn about them each September 15th, you know, the day set aside for them to for people to learn and to understand about the event. They will forever be teaching children, you know, until the end of time. So I believe that all of them are, are as we want to say, probably say today that they all are teachers. They're all teaching us, you know, as we learn today and as we grow and understand. And we, and we come closer to the events, all of the events that even surround the bombing. We all learn about those as well. So they're teaching us history and they're teaching us about themselves. Well, we can certainly say that uh, this bombing, this Birmingham was a city of bombing, so mm-hmm. it had earned the name of Bombingham. Okay. But 
this particular bombing, September 15, 1963, would be referred to forever as the bomb that was heard around the world. Yes. And in fact, it was, um, I've had, God has blessed me to travel to uh, places like Rome and Spain and India. And on one occasion, I visited Dublin, Ireland, uh, visited a Benedictine monastery, actually stayed there a little while. And even those monks, I mentioned that trip only to say, even those monks, as isolated as monks tend to be, living unto themselves, they were well aware of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. Yes. And once they became aware that I was, here was this little black girl from Birmingham, all the way over there in Dublin, Ireland. I think, I just feel that they must have offered a lot of prayers for me because when I left there, I felt strengthened in a way that I had not ever felt before. And, um, um, you know, several of the, the, we did a little programming and things while I was there. And I've seen a lot of creativity used in programs where I have been the person speaking. But the one thing that they put on that program was they didn't put my name, they put uh, witness. Oh, okay. That was all they put, witness. The witness. And, and that is to say, this is the witness. She bears witness to the horror of hatred. To yes. the horror of what happens when, when we don't love our brothers as, and sisters as ourselves. Yes. Now, let, us, let us not move uh, too forward without mentioning that there was actually a fifth girl in the bathroom as well. And that was Addie May's sister, Sarah. Sarah That's was correct. also in the bathroom That's as well correct. that day. That's correct. And we we have a snapshot of the last few minutes in that bathroom because of Sarah. Her name is Sarah Collins. Yeah. And um, Sarah told us that the last thing she heard, she was in a very different part of the bathroom. There was one part, the front part was a lounge where you could talk and sit and et cetera. Then you went through another door and there were bathrooms and places to wash your hands. And Sarah was in the back part, but she said the last thing that she heard was the nine-year-old Denise asking her sister, Addie, please tie the sash on my dress. And right at that moment, the bomb exploded. Wow. And I know uh, Carol Robinson was supposed to perform that night at school on Monday and the band how, how did the band go on with that before you know with that ceremony I wonder did it take place or because she's no longer there you know are they not having it now do you remember how that how that turned I out I don't know because I, I think we were in different high schools if I remember okay. correctly she was Oldman High School I was at Parker High School Okay, okay, okay. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. So, in the years after the bombing, now, how were you able to cope with society? You know, once you go, once you, you graduate from high school, you're now in Tennessee. How are you able to cope going for, going forward? Well, that's a good question. Uh, for a long time, I just got up every morning and put one foot in front of the other. And uh, kind of did whatever was on my schedule to do that day. I went on, I graduated from Parker High School. I was in, uh, number seven in a class of over 400 students. And I left, after I graduated, I went to Fisk University. And I was very perfunctory in everything that I was doing. Um, I didn't have my heart in it. I didn't have my soul in it. I was just sort of putting one foot in front of the other at that point uh, until I could, could get to a point. I was still trying to understand it. So until I could get to a point where I could put it all in perspective and understand what happened, uh, you know, I was just 
kind of zombie-like perfunctory performing over the next almost the next 20 years because we we can we can imagine and as we spoke about before once that bombing took place and you found out that you lost some people who were very close to you and some people you know showed you things at a young age that no young child should have been shown we talk about this dark cloud and as this dark cloud comes around you this dark cloud chases you as you just mentioned for 20 years and it's like you can't see the light outside of this cloud this cloud is always there forming you know gaining gaining new powers or how we want to say new trans uh new transformation through the reoccurrence of the things that are all bothering you and in this search for some type of light out of this darkness and out of the and out of the things that were that were haunting you did this piece that you that you finally found did this piece come with the convictions of Chamberless and 77 cash is passing and the convictions of the remaining two men by 2004 when I, mean, I know you were at the trial of cash in 2002 yeah um you know i think what was plaguing me all those years was uh fear number one because i had seen uh the bombing of the church allowed me to know and to see what human beings are capable of in the name of what they believe you know in the name of of believing segregation they were willing to bomb a church and willing to have people die and willing not to do anything about it because after it was 16, 14 years after the bombing before the first person was even arrested. So I think what was happening, I had to understand as a 14 year old, I had not come to understand the hatred that exists uh, in this country. My grandparents, my parents, none of them ever talked hatred about anyone. So, and I, my grandfather was a, a student of the Bible. He, had, he was pastoring two churches and teaching school. And I learned so much from my grandparents. And I knew that this wasn't consistent with the teachings of the Bible. Uh, and so the, the confusion was how can neighbors or how can people treat their neighbors or other people this way? As a child, I didn't understand that. What I know today is that there, uh, you know, people believe what they believe. I believe in Almighty God. I believe He has the power to change us. Uh, if we are hating, I believe He has the power to change that hate to love. Uh, if you allow that, if you want that, uh, it is a choice, Shahir, that we make every day. It is a choice how we choose to treat the people that we encounter i can choose to hate you i can choose to ignore you and uh for for the racism that exists in our country still i can choose to say well here comes another black person a brown person and i don't have anything to do with them because they are black or brown no. uh, you know so it's a choice that we make that's what i had to learn uh, God wasn't being mean to me. He wasn't teaching me a lesson. Uh, evil, evil things happen. And in fact, one of the white citizens of this uh, city wrote an article that said, uh, "Good things happen when I mean bad things happen when good people say nothing, when good people do nothing." So at any point in life at any point in history when we have people that are mistreating other people people that are doing things that are wrong like bombing the church and remember there were over 60 unsolved bombings before they bombed the church no one had ever been arrested or taken to justice for those 60 unsolved bombings so as long as no one is willing to confront evil as long as no one is willing to say anything, we will continue to get what we've got. 
Right. Because my parents did not want to teach hatred, because my grandparents did not teach hatred, it it didn't occur to me that what we have is just simply uh, a, a matter of hatred. We have people that hate other people because of what color they are. That's okay. still very difficult for me to understand because what color anyone is has nothing to do with who they are, has nothing to do with anything else. But it took me a long time to learn that lesson. And I struggled and suffered through it because I just thought my life was doomed for I was doomed to die. Because people had killed my friends, nothing was done about it. Then something was kind of sort of done about it when one person was arrested. You know, and it, it's a strange if you think about can you do you have children, Shahir? Yes, I have children, yes. Can you imagine someone bombing your house and two of your children died? And no one ever says anything more about it. You know, two years pass, five years pass, ten years pass. And yeah. no one comes to you and say, you know, we are so sorry for what happened. We don't condone that type of treatment. Uh, we're still working on it. We're going to make sure we get the person. You just don't hear anything. Right. And Your children are just wrong. And, 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 go ahead. And, and when we have the, the gentleman, uh, once, you know, facing some type of justice, coming out to say, hey, this bomb was not supposed to go off when it went off. It was, it was, it was a, it was a house made bomb, so we didn't know. It was only supposed to disrupt service for that day. It wasn't supposed to interrupt service. It was supposed to disrupt, just cause it from not happening at all. But when we think about the calls that were coming in in the morning, and we think about the call that you received, and as we mentioned before, these men had to be watching from somewhere to see when this bomb would go off. So they, you knew at 2 o'clock in the morning the bomb didn't go off. You knew at 8 o'clock the bomb didn't go off. So if you truly didn't mean to cause any harm, that means by 3 o'clock in the morning you should have got that bomb out of there. Because you, it didn't go off when you thought it was going to go off. But clearly you guys called back seconds before the bomb went off. And the bomb That's went right. off and people were killed. So anything that you're saying now is basically water under the bridge because people were killed regardless of what you tried to demonstrate or regardless of what you tried to accomplish that day and and mentioning you know me being a dad me having children i have a 12 year old daughter that is around the same age that you guys were during this time and last year when i researched this story this year doing research reading your book and that anger that i'm sure that chris felt you know and i'm sure that these the other dads and moms felt for their daughters, your dad, your mom, I'm sure they still felt anger, even though they had their daughter there with them. Just the attempt that you could have been gone. I would have been highly upset, pissed off. I wouldn't have been able to sit around the two men and look at them and hear their confessions and hear their so-called apologies and, and uh, things that they did not mean to do or things that were not meant to happen. I don't know if I would have been able to sit through that. I would have been highly upset, as you mentioned. So when we talk about forgiveness, and in the Christian belief system, we try to practice forgiveness. How do you take on a mantle of forgiving people for the atrocity that happened to you? You know, it's, it's simple for me now. How to forgive them for they know not what they do. It's just that simple. Most of the time, uh, you know, as a Christian, we believe that uh, we don't have the option to not forgive. We don't have the option not to love. So if I want to spend eternity uh, with, with God, uh, there are requirements for that. And I understand that. And I don't have the options to do it differently. So uh, the... The desire for my heavenly home uh, inspires me to, to live my life the best I can. Right. And live it to the Christian rules. 
Yes. So and then to to truly so to truly truly find forgiveness is to understand why we practice it and why we learn and understand what we understand as Christians. Is that is that a fact? That's right. Right. That's absolutely correct. So when we when we talk about prayer and you mentioned in your book the prayers of Peter Marshall. Um, can you can you give us one of those prayers that helped you you helped you through this dark time? No, um, I unfortunately I don't have that book here close okay. to me, and I you know I don't tend to memorize the prayers. Okay, but I go I go and get them when I need them. Um, okay, I think the most appropriate prayer for this occasion. Okay. would be the prayer that Jesus prayed when he was uh, being taken to Calvary. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I firmly believe that uh, when we don't know who God is, when we don't know who Jesus is, when we don't understand uh, there is, that there is a, a life beyond this one, and how we choose to live this one uh, sort of sets the course for where we spend the next one. Uh, I think that uh, people just don't have that understanding. That lack of understanding uh, could be attributed to many things. Some people don't read uh, whatever denomination they are members of. They don't read their Bible. Uh, and then you also have uh, shepherds that don't actually preach the Bible as it's written or preach it at all. You know, it's just sermons by by Reverend so and so. So, uh, but we're we're independently responsible for our own salvation. We are independently responsible for how we treat people, how we treat other people, and you know, at the very minimum, we have to know that it's wrong to kill. You know, if you don't understand some of the other things of the Bible, the teachings on on love are clear and simple. And the, the teaching on killing, uh, on, on what? The Ten Commandments. The, there's so many little simple parts that are clear to everyone, whether regardless of if they've had a Bible or not. Um, but the Bible says, if I don't want it done to me or my family, it, then I should all the more be reminded not to do those things to you. Yes. Well, I don't think there's any excuse. Uh, what we learned in later years that many of these people involved in the Klan organizations were members of churches. They were deacons in the churches. And that all of that was confusing to me. But it took a long time for me to understand what was at work. Evil is always at work no matter where you live, in this country or anywhere else. And uh, if you are uh, one who communes with the Lord and reads his work, you will recognize that evil when you see it. Yes. And you can always do anything about it, but it does mean that you can uh, try to stay as far away from it as you can. Yes, definitely. Um, As uh, I, as we sat here, we we talked, and we of course we talked about Peter Marshall. I actually came upon one of his prayers. Uh, if you know, if if you want me to go ahead and get into it, I can. Uh, it's uh from the prayers of Peter Mar Peter Marshall and the United Senate. Uh, My freedom be seen. Not as the right to do as we please, but as the opportunity to please to do what is right. May it ever be understood that our liberty is under God and can be found nowhere else. May our faith be something that is not merely stamped upon our coins, but is expressed in our lives. To the extent that America honors thee, wilt thou bless America? And keep her true as thou hast kept her free. 
and make her good as thou hast made her rich. Amen. Amen. You know, Amen. You pick the perfect mm -hmm. prayer. Yes. And and you and you look and we look at it, you know, and like I said, this this prayer, you know, is, is saying I, I wanna I wanna say not rich as in money. A lot of people look at money as riches as the the main goal. Look at riches as you found your peace, you found everything to make your family happy, and you are tackling everything that you have to do to have the just life that you want. And then, then you find your riches. And as we, you know, we close out, we want to, we, I want to uh, put it out there to be understood that, once again, September 15th is a very tragic day. We're going to always remember this as a tragic event. But we want to put a different, you know, sometimes put a different stamp on things so that the winners who thought they win become the losers. And I believe as, you know, we see the memorials and we see the church as, as you know, is rebuilt today. And it stands, you know, as erected as it does to show we were not damaged. We were not destroyed. You know, and I believe all of this goes in to say that September 15th is standing as a moment in time to show that when evil thought it did something to try to win, we all came out victorious at the other end of the spectrum. Would you, would you agree with that? I absolutely agree that that good overcame evil, what they meant for evil, uh, became a blessing for all of those involved. And, you know, in this, that sense, I, I absolutely agree with what you said. Yes. Um, so, once again, I want to thank you for taking the time to redo this with me. Um, We've done it before. It was it was a, a good time. I, and I thanked you once then. And I thank you again now for taking time out of your busy schedule to come here today and to redo this interview with me. Um, if you want to let uh, people know how can they get in touch with you, how could they if, get involved with any projects you have or you have in the future, you want to go ahead and let people know how they can get in touch with you or how could they contact you if they want to? Contact me through my email. My email address is my first initial and last name, C McKinstry48 at gmail.com. That's C M C K I N S T R Y 48 at gmail.com. All right, guys. Hopefully you got that. And I'm going to go ahead and what I'm going to do, I'm going to close out the interview as I usually do. Um, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for checking out the Relationship Stuff 101 podcast here on this September 15, 2021. I've been your host, Shahir Henderson, and I've been joined by Miss Carolyn McKinstry, author of While the World Watched. Um, as she mentioned, you guys can catch her on her email if you want to get in contact with her. We enjoyed having her as a guest here on the show. And Miss McKinstry, I'm going to let you go ahead and uh, sign yourself out. Thank you, Shahir. It was my pleasure to be with you today. And my message to, to all within hearing our voices is simply to keep the faith. God is faithful. All right. Thank you once again, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. All Thank right. You. you as well. Thank you. Bye. All right, guys. I want to thank you guys once again for taking the time to check out the podcast here on this September 15th. I want to thank Miss McKinstry for coming through. Um, what happened on the first podcast, guys, uh, I did the podcast and the video just came out, but not the audio. So we redid the interview here today 
because um, when we did it, we pre we pre did it, we pre recorded it, and we had to do the interview today, guys. At this moment, um, let's take a moment of silence, guys, to remember Denise McNair, Addie Collins, Cynthia Wesley, and Carol Robinson. Thank you, guys. Let, let's not let their memories die, and let's not let their legacies be tarnished by anything other than greatness and anything other than what they stand for and as we know them for standing for to this day. And they will forever stand for peace and prosperity found through the humble words of those who continue to share their story. Thank you guys for checking out the podcast here on the September 15, 2021. And as always, with your understanding, compared with my understanding, we can have a greater understanding. You've been listening to Relationship Stuff 101 Podcast, and I'm out. Peace.